Welcome to the Faith Lakeside Podcast. Each week you'll hear another great message that will help you know God and make Him known in your life. Join us each Sunday at 1045 a.m. and throughout the week in small groups to make the most of your learning experiences. Now, sit back, relax with a great cup of coffee and a notebook and enjoy this week's message. Patience for what's in the sermon. I'm not sure what that means. Um, I mean, I like it, I think. It's, so, it's like, please don't throw fruit or vegetables um, if you're not really into what I have to say. A couple of quick announcements as we uh, get going into the message. August 22nd, so that's in two weeks from now, uh, encourage everybody with a student in your family to bring their backpack if they're go- especially if they're going to be going to school physically this year. And we are going to have those at the front of the sanctuary. Pray over those and tag them with love. Uh, and that doesn't mean spraying spray paint on them. It means we'll actually have tags to place on each bag to remind the students that they are loved by their church and that we will be remembering to pray for them throughout the school year. And, you know, it's kind of gotten old and tiring to talk about how different the last year and a half has been or how different the next year or so may be. But it's the truth that our students more than ever need our our love, our prayers, and our support to continue being light in dark places, to continue being faithful um, students, to be faithful disciples of Jesus in difficult times. So encourage you to bring your students' backpacks. If you are an adult and going to school, uh, bring your book bag, backpack, uh, whatever. You know, teachers, bring your stuff so we can pray over things for you as well. Uh, knowing that this is a critical time in life where decisions get made, where shaping and forming happens, and so we want to encourage everybody to be participating in this prayer time. We do, uh, are, we're looking to establish Sunday Bible School. In fact, it will be happening Sunday, September um, 26th, and so that will be our first Sunday of Sunday Bible School for all ages, adults all the way down to nursery. We still need some dedicated adults, though, in nursery and preschool area. And if you are interested in being a substitute in the children's ministry um, classes, please let me know. In in the next couple of weeks, as we get closer to uh, our training meeting for teachers at the end of this month, I might start twisting some arms on some folks. So please uh, either volunteer or wait for your arm to be twisted. Another big thing coming up, September 19 is Back to Church Sunday, in which we're going to be telling everyone that hope is here. And we mean both in this building, in the community of believers, and in the Christ who has come to redeem us. And so we want to invite folks who maybe don't attend church at all or haven't attended church in a while to join us on September 19th. And there'll be more, you'll you'll be getting more in your hand in the next few weeks, including invitations and some other promotional materials. So encourage you, though, to be thinking about one family or a, a, a friend, an enemy that you would like to see saved. Uh, you know, who would you like to invite back to church on September 19th? And we will have a lunch to follow that service. So some things coming up, some things to be excited for, to be celebrating and praying over, which reminds me, everyone was encouraged to both last Sunday and then through email a couple times this week to join us in a month of prayer here for August. I hope that you have grabbed one of these or printed it out and it's in a prominent place. 
It doesn't have to be 45 minutes of on your knees until they bleed prayer. Even if it is just a simple stand there, Lord, I ask, read the calendar, add a few extra words, and then say in Jesus' name, amen, and, and ask in faith. I know that that's an effective prayer as well. Though, we would love for everybody to be spending more time with God, even if you're just spending a few moments every day. That brings us all as a family closer together in seeking the face of our beautiful Savior and His will for His church where we attend. So, if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to open them up to the book of Habakkuk. It is in the Habakkuk of the Old Testament. Um, like the back half of the Old Testament. Yeah, it was a bad joke. I am both a father and a grandfather, as well as a pastor, so my jokes will likely only get worse as I age. Um, so there's a warning if, if anybody um, wants to, to see it as such. Now, we, we have got an interesting thing going on here. This is a small Old Testament book. It's actually amongst the minor prophets, and we're not talking about his age. We were talking about... Uh, his perceived significance in the Old Testament canon. Now, we as believers, if you are a Christian, you should understand there is no part of Scripture that is any more or less inspired. There is no part of Scripture that is any more or less valuable to our Christian walk. In fact, the Apostle Paul writes to his protege, a pastor, young pastor named Timothy, and in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, Paul says, All scripture is God-breathed or inspired by God and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God or the believer may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So when Paul says that all scripture is inspired by God, he means all scripture. And it's profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, meaning it is useful to our lives, even a little book like Habakkuk that is in the back of the Old Testament amongst the minor prophets can be valuable to your development as a believer and mine as well. So I want to encourage you, it is only three short chapters to uh, maybe make Habakkuk part of your devotional life in the coming month or so, whether you just read through it a couple of times or you really spend some time contemplating and learning this small but powerful book. And um, just with me, now that you're opened up hopefully, chapter 1, verse 1, we're going to read. And I want you to see this is from the Christian Standard Bible, one of the different translations. I, I'm switching from the Gospel of Mark where I was using the English Standard Version. And you might ask, Michael, why do you switch versions? And I say, because I can. Um, they're both beautiful. They're both wonderful translations of the original languages. And so we have a plethora of great translations available to us. From the King James Version, which is, you know, of course, the classic, all the way up to newer translations like the Christian Standard Bible, all of them faithful to the original languages that we can read and know the heart of God as we read them. So Habakkuk 1.1 says this, the pronouncement that the prophet Habakkuk saw. So what we have here is in one verse, just the setup for what we are going to experience over the coming weeks. And the book of Habakkuk, while it is only three chapters, will probably take us just over a month to work our way through. 
And we're going to be looking at what makes this book unique, what makes it useful for our lives. How can we use it for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness? And we're going to find that the book of Habakkuk has a lot of parallels to our time. You know, what's interesting is um, the great teacher in Ecclesiastes said, there is nothing new under the sun. And it means that what we see repeating over and over again in the, the culture of humanity and the cycles of human life are the same issues, the same problems, the same struggles, the same doubts, the same joys. They repeat over and over. They're cyclical. Now, we all know that the world changes, technology advances, and yet the problems remain the same. They continue over and over again, nothing new under the sun. So to help you understand Habakkuk, I thought it was important today to understand the cycle of desperation that Habakkuk is stuck in, the way that we see the world through Habakkuk's eyes. And the way to do that is to kind of, well, let this lie for a moment, this one verse, and then jump into the world of Habakkuk, that we might try and understand what the prophet is experiencing so we can put his words in context. And to do that, we kind of have to do this, um, this jump back in history. We, we got to, sorry, for those of you who are um, uh, Gen Xers like me, I'm, uh, I just got Wayne's World. Um, so we're, we're, we're going back and we're taking and we're going in a different place. And we're going to see some history. So many of us are familiar with um, God's people, we can go all the way back to Exodus, we go all the way back to Genesis, but then we would be here till 2 o'clock, and that would be upsetting for many of us. So we're going to look just Exodus really quick. Of course, God's people, the children of Israel, he, he um, frees them from slavery. They spend 40 years wandering in the desert. Eventually, they have their own land, Israel, uh, as we know it today. And, and they go through this, this cycle of leadership where they've got... Um, good leadership, and then uh, the leader dies, and then everybody does what's right in their own eyes, and they do evil, and God brings judgment, and then they bring, God gives them a good leader who rescues them, and it's this cycle of good leader, rescue, bad choices by the people, punishment. And then what happens is the people ask for a king, and, and most of us are familiar with the first king of Israel. His name was Saul, not Saul who became Paul, that's the New Testament, don't confuse that, but he's just Saul, Saul, he was from the tribe of Benjamin, uh, he, you know, so that was his family, the tribe of Benjamin, he was a really tall guy, and he also made some really bad choices, he ends up dead, and the next king, as chosen by God, is not Saul's son, but instead another man, whose name most of us are familiar with, David. And many of us know that little phrase, David was a man after God's own heart. He was a good king. He made some stupid choices, but he was a good ruler. And overall, the big picture, he loved God and walked in righteousness. And David had a son. And his son's name, anybody know? Solomon. Yes, and so many of us are familiar with Solomon, uh, even if it's just some cheesy movie in the 70s or 80s about his, his mind's or, you know, the, the, where he had stored all his riches. Uh, and what happened is, is we can see kind of a picture of where Israel is here at the, the far eastern side of the Mediterranean Sea. And by the time Solomon is king, Israel is 
this, this big. It's huge compared to even its modern iteration. And, and Solomon's influence stretches all the way from Egypt in the south all the way up to Assyria and, and other, other foreign kingdoms in the north. From the, the river up there down to the Red Sea, it was all that God had promised them for the most part. There was um, some lack. But uh, Solomon had really laid claim to much of God's promises. And Solomon was a very wise man, and he was a moderately good leader, but he made a lot of terrible personal choices. And his righteousness was always in question before God. When he, uh, he was married to multiple women, he was worshiping false gods on the side. He was just not a, a great man. And, and the results of that... The fruit of that, while he was a good leader and he was wise, he wasn't great and so his son was not a great man. And it ends up that when Solomon passes away, one of his generals uh, makes plans to be king next and his son wants to be king next. Well, what happens is the kingdom is divided into two. And we call them in history, because they're called this in the Bible, the kingdoms of Israel in the north, which is made up of ten of the twelve tribes of Israel, and then the kingdom of Judah in the south, whose capital was Jerusalem, and they were made up of the two tribes of Judah and Benjamin. Uh, uh, that was their overwhelming makeup. And yet you can see that these two kingdoms, Israel under Solomon, which is huge, and in just a few years, Israel and Judah underneath Solomon's son who was ruling in the kingdom of Judah and Solomon's ex-general who was ruling the kingdom of Israel, they shrank dramatically under this poor leadership and under bad kings. Interestingly enough, the kingdom of Israel, this is a, a little bit better, closer up picture, the kingdom of Israel whose capital was in Samaria and many of us, as we think about the New Testament, we think about Samaritans. And that is kind of where some of the issues between Jews and Samaritans arise, is this evil kingdom of Israel in the north, who never once had a good king. All of the kings of Israel worshipped false gods, rejected the one true God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and ultimately, Israel faces punishment from God through the, or at the hands of the Assyrian uh, Empire. And so... The, the map says, and if you had the app, it's on there too. Israel falls to the Assyrian Empire in 722 B.C. So 722 B.C. is when Israel falls. And if you remember, um, B.C. is counted down toward zero. So 722. And then Jerusalem continues. It's got this cycle of good kings and bad kings. In fact, um, did a, a little bit of, of looking. And uh, kings of Judah... There were 19 kings of Judah, the southern kingdom, which had some good ones and some bad ones. Eight of them were good. Eleven of them were bad. So we have this, this kingdom in the south that's going back and forth between good leadership and bad leadership. And depending upon your political persuasion, you might see in that back and forth uh, a, a view of the United States. Kind of a, a back and forth. Oh, a good king. Oh, a bad king. And all depending upon your persuasion. Not making any pronouncements about which is the good one or the bad one. Though I do have my own persuasions. Um, <laughs> just, just so everybody knows for sure, I'm not that squishy. Uh, so what, that, that's kind of what we come up on is we've got Israel has already fallen 
to the Assyrians as a judgment from God because they had lived in desperate wickedness for years, for almost um, 200 years. Uh, And so they were already judged. They had been taken off into captivity, utterly destroyed. Judah is, is remaining and they are in, still stuck in a cycle of good and bad kings until we get to the last 100 years of Judah. In the last 100 years of the kingdom of Judah, what we see is that there is a, there are a cycle of kings that it changes completely. So we're going to look at some of these kings of Judah in the last 100 years of its life cycle. Now, why are we concerned with the kingdom of Judah? Because the prophet Habakkuk was living in the kingdom of Judah. And so we know for a fact that is where he was living. We know for a fact that this is the context for his experiences. What we don't know for sure is exactly what time frame Habakkuk wrote in. So scholars have narrowed it down to this last 100 years of Judah's existence. Some believing that he prophesied or talked with God underneath this first king we're going to mention. And some believing he talked with God under one of the last kings that we're going to mention. But we're going to see a cycle instead of back and forth and good kings and bad kings, a cycle that tends to settle into one that's much more negative in these last 100 years of the kingdom of Judah. So... If you have your Bibles, you can uh, flip with me to 2 Kings chapter 21. 2 Kings chapter 21. And you can also find uh, all of these kings and the list of them in 2 Chronicles at the end of 2 Chronicles. Now, we're not going to do a lot of reading uh, in bulk, but I want you to see in your own Bible where these kings are mentioned. So, first king we have in the last 100 years of the kingdom of Judah... His name is Manasseh. He reigned for 55 years, and the reason his reign ended was because of old age. What a great way to go, right? I mean, just you get old, you retire and die. Uh, well, it sounds good to me. I would like to preach until I collapse, and at that point, you can just finish up with the funeral service, right? And it'll be a celebration, I hope, and, um, I'm, but I'm not planning it any time in the next month or two, babe. Okay, um, so here is the deal, though. When when the Bible tells us about Manasseh, it says this of him in 2 Kings 21.6. It says, he sacrificed his son in the fire. Now, you might wonder, what what does that mean? Well, it was part of worship of one false god, Molech, to sacrifice living children in fire. There's actually, we're not 100% sure if it's legitimate or not, but but this uh, anecdotal evidence that they had a, a... statue built to Molech that they built fire within and it would heat up and then they'd put the infants in the hands of this burning hot idol and that's how they would be sacrificed. And like I said, we're not certain, it's not 100% historically for sure, but there's anecdotal evidence that this was the case. And so Manasseh, in the worship of this false god, at the very least, he had killed his son in fire it could have been as bad as, as the scalding hot statue that slowly took his life in, in agony. And here's what else Manasseh did. He practiced witchcraft and divination. He consulted mediums and spiritists. These are all things that are strictly prohibited underneath the law of God. 
He did a huge amount of evil in the Lord's sight, angering him. I, I just wish I could had a better Donald Trump impersonation because huge, you know, just right in there. I mean, you can just hear that. This is a big deal. Manasseh is a terrible person. He has sacrificed his own son. He has practiced occultic practices. He has done lots of evil in the Lord's sight and made God very angry. Now, this is just Manasseh as a man. When we look at Manasseh as a king, it says this, Manasseh also shed so much innocent blood that he filled Jerusalem with it from one end to another. This was in addition to his sin that he caused Judah to commit so that they did what was evil in the Lord's sight. Not only was Manasseh a terrible person in his own right, but he also slaughtered innocent people. And he also led the people of Judah into sinful living, into committing evil against God. Does this start to sound familiar? Does this, does this look like anything we, we would understand and see around us? Can you understand, as we look at just this first king, why the book of Habakkuk may have some relevance to our lives today? Now, chapter 21 of 2 Kings, verses 10, and 15, 10 through 15, this is what God's word says. It says, The Lord said through his servants, the prophets, since King Manasseh of Judah has committed all these detestable acts, worse evil than the Amorites who preceded him had done. So God's looking back to the godless pagan people who were in Judah before he gave that land to the Israelite people and saying that Manasseh's sins are worse than the pagans that used to live there. So worse evil than the Amorites who preceded him had done, and by means of his idols has also caused Judah to sin. This is what the Lord God of Israel says. I am about to bring such disaster on Jerusalem and Judah that everyone who hears about it will shudder. I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line used in Samaria and the mason's level used on the house of Ahab, and I will wipe Jerusalem clean as one wipes a bowl, wiping it and turning it upside down. I will abandon the remnant of my inheritance and hand them over to their enemies. They will become plunder and spoil to all their enemies because they have done what is evil in my sight and have angered me from the day their ancestors came out of Egypt until today. So what we see very clearly is under this King Manasseh, there are prophets speaking that are declaring judgment will come because of the evil in this land. Judgment is on its way because of the evil of the king, because of the evil of the people. And, and God's judgment is not some sort of slap on the wrist. It's not some sort of, of, of little tweaking. It is instead he talks about cleaning out a bowl, wiping it, and, and turning it upside down to make sure there is nothing left. This is an absolute destruction that God is promising. And I want you to catch this, his own chosen people because of their faithlessness, because they have rejected him, because they have chosen to worship false gods over him, 
because they have chosen to rely on other kingdoms for their security instead of relying upon God for their strength and security. So some scholars believe that Habakkuk may have lived under King Manasseh here in 2 Kings chapter 21. But guess what? He's not the end of the last 100 years. He's just a major part of it. What we see next is his son, Ammon. And Ammon lived as king for two years. And then he was assassinated by his own counselors, by the people around him. And here's what it says about him. It says, he did what was evil in the Lord's sight, just as his father Manasseh had done. So when we get to Ammon, we understand he's not any better. In fact, he is just as bad as his father. So we can see that this is an issue of both the character of the leader and the actions of all the followers. And this whole culture is collapsing on itself in paganism and debauchery. It is collapsing on itself in selfishness and hatred. And we see it evidenced in the kings. Now, here is what happens after those two years. The people rise up, and they put all of the ones who had killed Ammon to death, and then they pick the next king, his son, Josiah. So his son, Josiah, reigns for 21 years, and he is killed in war with Egypt. And here's what the Bible says about Josiah. He did what was right in the Lord's sight and walked in all the ways of his ancestor David, he did not turn to the right or the left. And if you were to look here in 2 Kings 22, if you were to scan quickly, you can understand that Josiah was a genuinely good king. And he was a good man on top of that. He, he led the people of, of Judah to tear down idols, to, to destroy the places where these false gods were worshipped. And he actually made it to where they, they were going to rebuild things and they were going to take the money from the temple and provide for others and, and stuff. And while they're cleaning out the temple treasury during Josiah's reign, do you know what they find? Their copy of the Bible. Now you wonder, why did they only have one? But that's all they had is one copy left in the, the treasury of the temple. They had been living for years without a physical copy of God's word to read. And when they read the law of God, they realized that they were not doing things right. The, the, the priests bring the book to Josiah. He has them read it. They go ahead and make sure that everyone within earshot gets to hear the law. And they start making these huge reforms, trying to come back into compliance with God's expectations for them, his people. But what's sad is even with all of this repentance and all of this change, and all of this faithfulness. 2 Kings 23 verses 26 and 27 tells us this. In spite of all that, the Lord did not turn from the fury of his intense burning anger, which burned against Judah because of all the affronts with which Manasseh had angered him. For the Lord had said, I will also remove Judah from my presence just as I have removed Israel. I will reject this city, Jerusalem, that I have chosen, and the temple about which I said my name will be there. We see that, that even just this, this quick 
act of repentance, these few moments of years, actually, of trying to turn back to God, it's, it's not enough. For overall, we see that the culture is depraved. We see that the people's hearts are still turned away from God. And we still see that what's going to happen next at the death of Josiah reveals to us that these people are desperately wicked and deserving of judgment. The next king after Josiah's death is Jehoahaz. Um, what fun names we're getting into. These ones are exciting. They're just fun to say. They're just, you need a poem, you need a song. You know, Jehoahaz, the king of Israel. Except he was Judah. Sorry, anyway. Um, it, it's like it could be a sea shanty in just a moment. Uh, Jehoahaz, he, he reigned for three months. He was the son of Josiah. But he was deposed by Egypt, one of the great superpowers of the time. And the king of Egypt came up and took him captive, took him back down to Egypt, and that's where he died. But even in those three months, here's what we find out about Jehoahaz. He did what was evil in the Lord's sight, just as his ancestors had done. So Jehoahaz is, is deposed by the king of Egypt, and the, Egypt then places his brother on the throne. And his name is Jehoiakim. And see, another fun name. It's like, it, it's just one step away from a sea shanty. Or if you want to name your kids this, um, I don't know what you'd call them for short, short you know, hoy! Um, Jehoiakim. He reigned for 11 years. And he was deposed or killed by Babylon. We're not exactly sure. The, the two different accounts are a little different. One says that he died in Jerusalem. One says that he was taken away and maybe brought back. Um, so we're not exactly sure where he died. But we do know his reign ended after about 11 years. And it ended because the Babylonian Empire came in and took over Judah and deposed Jehoiakim. Here's what it says about him in 2 Kings 23, 37. He did what was evil in the Lord's sight, just as his ancestors had done. Just as his grandfather Ammon, just as his brother uh, Jehoahaz, just as his, his great-grandfather grand, great uh, Manasseh, all of them doing evil in the Lord's sight. Here's, here's what scripture then says in 2 Kings 24, verses 2 through 4. Here's what it says. The Lord sent uh, Chaldean, Aramean, Moabite, and Ammonite raiders against Jehoiakim. He sent them against Judah to destroy it. According to the word of the Lord, he had spoken through his servants, the prophets. Indeed, this happened to Judah at the Lord's command to remove them from his presence. It was because of the sins of Manasseh, according to all he had done, and also because of all the innocent blood that he had shed. He had filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and the Lord was not willing to forgive. I think it's, it's interesting to, to see throughout these last few chapters of, of, of 2 Kings, from 21 to 24 here, the notion of the spilling of innocent blood is brought up multiple times. And of course, if we were to think of our own culture and the spilling of innocent blood and how in God's eyes, for these people, it was unforgivable as an offense and doomed them to certain judgment. Might that not be true in our own time as well? The next king after Jehoiakim is Jehoiachin. Uh, I don't know if like, maybe he had a prominent facial feature, uh, but he only reigns for three months. 
He only reigns for three months, and he ends up being taken to Babylon by the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. And even in those three months, though, Jehoiachin, same story, same cycle. It begins all over again, you know, same, uh, same song, next verse, same as the first and the second and the fourth and the fifth. He did what was evil in the Lord's sight, just as his father had done. So we see Jehoiachin, the son of Jehoiakim, he is given the throne and then he is immediately deposed and taken away to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar. So we're left with the last king of Judah, which would be, once again, just a perfect song, not because of his name, but that's just like a, the last king of Judah. Um, it's like a hairband thing. I mean, it'd be a great ballad. Just Sorry. Sometimes I get in the zone. Zedekiah. Zedekiah is the last king of the kingdom of Judah. He reigns for 11 years, and all of the time, he was a puppet of the Babylonian government. And by the time those 11 years are over, he is taken away to Babylon and killed. Here's what it says in King, uh, 2 Kings verse, chapter 24, verse 19. For some reason, I missed the two there. Zedekiah did what was evil in the Lord's sight, just as Jehoiakim had done. Because of the Lord's anger, it came to the point in Jerusalem and Judah that he finally banished them from his presence. So we see that the desperate wickedness and evil of the kings and the people of the kingdom of Judah finally brought things to the point where God banished them from his presence. And remember, think about this. These are not just strangers to God. This is not just some country out there in the middle of nowhere that we have an accounting of. Instead, these are the chosen people of God. These are the ones whom he said he was going to make a, a, a change in the world. He was going to reach out and, and show the whole world who he was through them. But he promised them it was going to happen in one of two ways. If they were faithful to him, he would bless them and the whole world would know that they were his. But if they were unfaithful to him, he would curse them and punish them because the whole world would know that they were his to do with as he pleased. And this is what we see happening finally to the kingdom of Judah. So in the last 100 years of the kingdom of Judah, there are seven different kings. The last 100 years, one good, six evil. And here are the things that are going on in this culture. They are worshiping false gods. They are practicing witchcraft. They are partaking in child sacrifice. They are supporting and advocating for injustice toward others. There is an absolute failure to follow God's law. In fact, for much of this time, over half of this time... They didn't even know they had a copy of God's law. It had become so lost to them. An interesting thing, under the reign of Josiah, that was the, uh, they celebrated Passover for the first time since the time of the judges. So it was this huge block of time where the people of God weren't even faithful to celebrate one of the most important feasts in their own history. 
They were not following God's law. They were trusting in government over God. They were putting all of their hope in authorities that, that, that were over them or somebody they could make an alliance with and not in the power of God in their own life. And probably what is most difficult to wrap our heads around is they were wantonly killing the innocent. But when we read this list about what was going on, and we see these kings and these leaders, and we, we hear the report of what kind of people they were ruling over, what do we see here? Well, we see ourselves. We see our own culture. We see in this very list a description of what we might see just turning on the television. I dare you, go on Netflix, check out the top 20. I bet we can hit all of these things in the top 20 on Netflix. Things that we use to entertain ourselves. And listen, uh, you know, I might be pointing a finger, right? But there's three more at least pointing back at me. I too struggle to not be overwhelmed by the culture, to not be consumed by it. But look at the evil here in the time of Habakkuk. Look at the evil that surrounds us. Look at the choices we should be making. As we read Habakkuk, I want you to, to really not just read it as something that happened a long time ago, and it's a neat story, but rather, I want you to understand that you and I could be Habakkuk. I want you to understand that when we read this book of Habakkuk, when we, when we see God's responses to the prophet Habakkuk, this is not divorced from, from something or some long ago story. This could very well be us in dialogue with God. And in fact, I think it should be. I think we should be ashamed of the things that we participate in and sanction. I think we should be ashamed of our leaders, no matter which side of the aisle they rest their caboose. I think we should be ashamed of the way that we entertain ourselves. I think we should be ashamed of the false gods that we worship. And this is not about condemning. Listen, this is not about pointing fingers and saying, you dirty, rotten, terrible people, get right with God. Rather, it is to say for all of us, when we look at Habakkuk's time, most of us would go, well, that's just terrible. Let's be honest and look at our own time and the things that surround us and taint us and decide if we wouldn't cast the same judgment on our own lives and culture as we would on those in the time of Habakkuk. So back to the, the book of Habakkuk, chapter 1, verse 1. Here is what it says to us. It says, the pronouncement that the prophet Habakkuk Saw. So the word pronouncement, some of your Bibles might say the prophecy, the oracle. At its heart, this word really means the burden that was laid upon the prophet Habakkuk. That, that this was not some sort of simple word. This was not some sort of, of just, hey, Habakkuk, everything's going to be okay. But when God and Habakkuk are having this dialogue throughout this book, and that's really what this book is, is a dialogue between Habakkuk the prophet and God, we're going to see that the results are that Habakkuk has a burden. He has to struggle with what he hears and sees. 
And he has to wrestle with it. Now, what do we know about Habakkuk? The thing is, not much. Other than, he's got a fun name to say, Habakkuk, Habakkuk, Habakkuk. I just like names. Hebrew names can be fun. And, and listen, when you're reading your Bible out loud, like in a study group or something, and you come to a Hebrew name, just say it with gusto. Nobody else knows it either. So just be like, Habakkuk. Yes, sir. Habakkuk. I mean, just, but if you say it with gusto, this is just, this is a freebie for the day. If you say it with gusto, everybody will be like, they are so learned, right? Because nobody knows how to pronounce the Hebrew names. Habakkuk, though, what do we know about him? Well, well, nothing, really. We don't see him anywhere else in the scripture. He's not specifically recorded anywhere in the histories, but what we do know is, is the few things we can draw from what we see in his book. His name may be... Uh, uh, kind of a, an offshoot of the Hebrew word for embrace. That's what some scholars think is possible. But interestingly enough, his name also aligns with an Assyrian plant or fruit tree. It was a tree, a plant that, that looked like, uh, or made a fruit something akin to like a cucumber. And so wouldn't that be a great name? Just, hey, cucumber plant. Um, <laughs> yay! Habakkuk, though. So we don't, we don't even know, though. Because it's not quite Hebrew, and it's not quite Assyrian. Maybe it's like one of those made-up names like we have in our culture today uh, that just, we, we kind of go, you just mashed some words together, didn't you? I mean, it's fine. They're made in the image of God. We love that person, but their name is weird, and you're creative. But what do we know about him? Well, we don't see anything about the name of his father, which is how, in Hebrew culture, he would have normally been identified. Habakkuk, son of someone. But we don't have any, any clue who his father was. We're not given a tribe. Oftentimes we, we get a father, we get a tribe from one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, or or uh, he probably would have been from either Judah or Benjamin since he lived in Judah. But still, no specific. We don't know for sure. No hometown. We don't know where he lived. Now, why is all of this important? The things we don't know about Habakkuk. This is why we can't say exactly when it was written. This is why when, when I'm talking to you about the last 100 years of the kingdom of Judah, why it's important for you to understand Habakkuk could have been anywhere in those 100 years. And they all, 100 of them, other than a handful of them under Josiah, all of them were terrible. And in all of them, Habakkuk would have been relevant. So no father, no tribe, no hometown, no recipients. Which leads us to believe this prophecy was not necessarily directed toward Someone, which is what we see in other prophetic books like Jeremiah and Isaiah, that we see a clear recipient. But instead, when we read the book of Habakkuk, it seems that this was not a message from God to the kingdom of Judah, but it is the record of a dialogue between God and Habakkuk. This is, a, in, in essence, an extended prayer session that Habakkuk has. And he writes all of his experiences down. Because what he sees burdens his heart. What he sees, he, he, he thinks others need to hear. Others need to know the struggle. So we're not going to dive in deep because we're nearing the end of our time together. But we're just going to read the first little bit of Habakkuk chapter 1. 
And, and in your Bibles, if you have little headings in there, it could be Habakkuk's first prayer or Habakkuk's first complaint. And what we see is that after verse 1 introduces us to this burden that Habakkuk receives, then we begin to get the details of what that burden is. So chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, if you join with me, I'll read them aloud and you follow along in your Bible or your Bible app. Here is Habakkuk's first complaint. Now, the whole structure, there's actually going to be two times that Habakkuk complains to God. And then God responds. And then we find at the end of the book, Habakkuk's final response to God. So here is his first complaint or his first prayer. Verse 2, how long, Lord, must I call for help and you do not listen or cry out to you about violence and you do not save? Why do you force me to look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Oppression and violence are right in front of me. Strife is ongoing. Conflict escalates. This is why the law is ineffective, and justice never emerges. For the wicked restrict the righteous, therefore justice comes out perverted. Now, we'll spend more time next week getting into each of the components of Habakkuk's complaint. But when you understand the context and we read together this first complaint that Habakkuk has for God. Can you see the relevance of this book to our lives today? Can you see this struggle that the prophet Habakkuk is in, in this broken and depraved and pagan world that he's living? He calls out to God and says, How long, Lord, do I have to keep crying out to you and you don't listen? This place is broken, God. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? So, finally, this morning, why are we going to study Habakkuk? Why are we going to spend time in this little minor prophet at the back of the Old Testament without a recipient? We don't even know where he lived. We don't know what his name meant. Why are we going to study Habakkuk? Shouldn't we just blow through it and say, there's another one for ignoring because here's the truth about Habakkuk. We're going to see as we study it, as we grow and read together, we're going to see similar times reflected in Habakkuk. Similar circumstances and struggles and fears. We're going to see this burden that Habakkuk has, and we're going to probably be able to identify it as our own in some ways. As we understand the time frame that Habakkuk is written in, we can see direct comparisons to the evils of his world and ours. I mean, that last 100 years, worship of false gods, witchcraft, child sacrifice, injustice, failure to follow God's law, trust in government over God, killing the innocent, direct parallels between Habakkuk's world and ours. We're going to find that Habakkuk has similar struggles. How many of you here would love to see the evil in the world squashed today? Anybody ever pray, why haven't you done it yet, God? 
And what we're going to find, just like we already have, is that's a question that's right at the forefront of Habakkuk's mind. Now, God's answer is probably going to make us squirm a little bit. But it's the right answer, and it's the perfect answer. So we see similar times and evils and struggles, and ultimately we're going to see similar questions for God. That we're going to read Habakkuk and go, oh yeah, I identify with that. Oh yeah, no doubt. And then we're going to read God's answers to Habakkuk and go, really? (laughs) Are, Are you sure? And the goal will ultimately be to settle where Habakkuk does. In a land, in a mindset of trust for God's plans. So, I encourage you to join us. If you're just visiting this morning for the good times we're about to have, and uh, you don't have someplace else you call church home, continue to join us for the, the book of Habakkuk. Uh, you, you know, if, uh, if you've got someplace else that's your home, go there, please. Be faithful to your church. But otherwise, this is going to be some good stuff we're going to get into. I will try and be just uh, you know, a nice little balance between serious and cracking a few jokes every once in a while. So it won't be too heavy, but just heavy enough to convict us and lead us into some proper understandings. So, as the worship team makes their way up, I want to encourage you today, if you are one of those people that's looking for answers, that you are struggling, i got to tell you that Habakkuk's going to give us some, some interesting viewpoints and answers about what God has for us. But the first thing that you can do, the first answer you need to look to in regard to your questions for God is salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. In fact, it's so very clear as we read the whole of the Bible that God's one greatest answer to evil in our world was to send his son, Jesus, to suffer on our behalf, to pay the price for our sins on the cross, to rise again on the third day, and give eternal life freedom from sin, restoration in this life and forever in his presence to everyone who would believe on him as Lord and Savior. And so if you have never believed on Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior today, I want to encourage you, that is the first answer to dealing with the problem of evil, is to address the evil and sinfulness in your own heart and to say, God, I deserve punishment for the rebellion that I have been part of against you and today I acknowledge that I turn from my rebellion I trust that the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross pays for the consequences the sin of my rebellion takes away my guilt makes me whole again I repent of all of that old stuff and I believe in him as my Lord and Savior that's the first answer to the question the problem of evil in your life and mine is to trust Jesus as Lord and Savior. So if you're interested in that, you want to know more about that, first, find somebody who you're here with and ask them. See if they can't give you more answers. If they can't, then the two of you come together to either myself or some other leader in the church and we'll talk. But first, see if there's somebody else who couldn't give you some help in understanding salvation through Christ. Let's pray together and then we'll close with uh, a song and then we'll have a baptism. Jocelyn Chavez is getting baptized, and um, yay, and the water's really cold, I'm sorry. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for today. We thank you for your love for us.
And we thank you that you have given us your word because in it we can find answers for every question we might ask. In it we can find truth that gives stability and hope even in the midst of dark times like these. And so, Father God, we thank you for the book of Habakkuk and we thank you that it will point us ultimately to your son, Jesus. We are so thankful for what he did for us we pray that if anyone here this morning does not know him as their own personal savior, that they would ask questions, that they would seek to answer the problem of sin and evil in their own heart first, that they might begin to be part of the team then that will address the sin and evil in the world around us. We thank you so much for this time together and ask that you would continue to bless the moments that lie ahead. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. celebrate the baptism of Jocelyn Chauvet, you know, and, and uh, so, Jocelyn, if you want to come, like, to the door, we're not going to get you to come in the water yet, because I don't want you shivering, youngin. Um, no, it's not terrible if you want to step in. What do you think? It's good. It's actually, yeah, it's, it's kind of comfy. It's kind of just soothing and cooling. Um, but we, we hopefully, everyone understands that baptism is this act of obedience in which we make a public profession of faith. That we've received Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And that's something that Jocelyn and, and her parents and I, we've talked about and, and believe that to be the case in her life by her own profession of faith. And so we are baptized in accordance with what we were told in Scripture, where Jesus said we're supposed to be making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And baptism is this act of celebrating in our own life the death, 
that we identify with in Christ and then being raised up to brand new life through him. So I want to encourage you, if you have never been baptized, that there is opportunity every week. All you got to do is let me know. It takes about four hours to fill the tub. And I, four hours warning, and anyone can be baptized. Once we understand that you grasp what baptism means and why it's significant for you as a believer, and that it's not something that saves you, rather it is an act of obedience following a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. So Jocelyn, you ready to come on down here? Hold my hand. I almost fell and died. So, all right. So go ahead and we'll, yeah. Oh, you got this. You didn't know she was so tall, did you? This is pretty amazing. All right. So Jocelyn, a couple of questions. Have you uh, trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Mm -hmm. Yes. And so would you like to be baptized as a sign of your obedience and a commitment to walk in new life in obedience to him? Uh -huh. <laughs> that sounds good to me. So here we go. All right. So you ready? I've got the cloth for over your face. You're going to hang on tight. It's my privilege to baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, buried with him in death. It's all right. And raised up to walk in newness of life. Woo! All right. <laughs> Amen. Thank you for that privilege, Jocelyn, for sharing that with us. She's already ready to get warm clothes. Um, thank you, friends, family, church family, for being here today. And celebrating not just Jocelyn's salvation and her profession of faith publicly, but this time together. What a privilege it is to be the family of God and celebrate things like this and to look into God's word and know that we have hope and truth to guide us. Uh, may I lead us in prayer and then the worship team's going to play us out. Father God, we thank you so much for the privilege of baptism. We thank you for young faith and how it challenges those of us who've been walking with you for years to rededicate, to recommit, to be fervent and on fire for who we are in you, Lord Jesus. I pray for anyone else here who has made a, a profession of faith privately, but it needs to be made public, that you would give them boldness to come forward for baptism and that you would help them to understand that first act of obedience that it reflects. Continue to guide us and direct us. Soften our hearts to the troubles around us. Make us tender to what angers you. May it anger us. When we see what, what disappoints you, may it disappoint us. And may we be like Habakkuk and just cry out to you, Lord, when are you going to make things better and help me to be part of it? Thank you for this time once again. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. That's all the life.